0: Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by David Lennon. David is the national baseball writer for Newsday. You can give him a follow on Twitter at DP David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross, uh, and a happy new year to you. Thank you. You as well. Let's start at the beginning. David, tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place.
1: Well, I, I grew up, you know, like many people playing the sport. Uh, at a very young age, through Little League and and into high school and and even into college, um, I went to Holy Cross and in Worcester, Mass, which is a small Division One school. And you know, I, I actually loved playing baseball so much I didn't want to give up playing it. But eventually, the, the end comes for all of us. And uh, I think it was in in college that I you know basically realized my ceiling was only going to be so far. And after my sophomore year there, I actually. It switched over to what I do now professionally, and that's that's writing, and, and I wrote for the, the college newspaper there. So what I do now is actually kind of a, a good blend of a sport that I loved to play growing up and, and another activity, which I love to do, and then that's to write. So for me, it was a, uh, a natural
0: combination of the two. You cover the Mets and the Yankees regularly. Let's get into them a little bit. We're also going to do some Hall of Fame talk. We'll do that a little later. There's been some mild chatter with the Mets that they might be interested in, Troy Tulowitzki. Do you see that deal happening?
1: Well, I I would say there's certainly been chatter uh, about it. Now, whether chatter means actual movement or uh, negotiation towards uh, Tulo coming to Queens uh, is another matter. I I mean, I think what the Mets have done uh, is the logical thing and what many GMs like to call due diligence and stayed in touch with the Rockies to see what it might take, uh, for Tulawitski to, to come over there. But, you know, there's numerous obstacles here. I mean, for the Mets, I mean, there's a health issue of Tulowitzki who's, you know, had some back problems, um, and is still rehabbing. Even now the Mets are concerned about that. There's a prohibitive cost involved, of course you know, for a guy that that's due about 118, uh, $118 million, I believe. So, you know, there was they have to get by that, too, if if the Rockies could, you know, possibly chip in a, a big chunk of that money. And, and three is, is the cost and what minor league prospects the Mets would have to give up. And, you know, the Mets have gone through a long kind of painstaking process here to try to build up their minor league system and, and also – kind of get rid of some of their bigger contracts of past years to be a little bit more maneuverable. And, you know, what's happened here is they're, they're getting to that spot. And I, I just don't see them giving all that up for a player who, while is immensely talented, uh, still could be a bit of a risk. Now he's getting a little bit older, uh, you know, you're signing on for, uh, another six years of him, uh, at increased age in diminishing health. And I, I just think, Again, for, for a number of reasons, at this price right now, it's not making sense, uh, I don't think, for the Mets to, uh, to make a move for him.
0: And Tulowitzki is one of those guys where he's fascinating because when he's healthy, he's so clearly the best shortstop in baseball. But he's so infrequently healthy that guys who are in their 20s and injury-prone very rarely age well. They tend to be injury-prone well into their 30s as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, Ross, it, it makes sense for certain teams, you know, that might want to gamble on that you know, that may want to take on that type of salary, also have the, ch- the possibility to, to let him do some DHing. you know, maybe let him play third, maybe have him play first base, uh, you know, if, if his health issues become too much at shortstop. But, you know, we're talking about a National League team here, obviously, with the Mets. They certainly don't have the financial resources to, to roll the dice uh, on a contract of that size. And at third base, they're certainly set. Uh, but first base could be an option further down the line or maybe even outfield. But I think right now the numbers they're looking at and what the cost is going to be in talent and what I've been told by people with the Mets is that the Rockies certainly aren't giving any kind of discount here, that the price in young talent is going to be prohibitive, and, and that's not really a place the Mets want to go right now.
0: And do you see the Yankees possibly jumping in on a whiskey deal?
1: You know, that was something, Ross, that, that I, I thought actually made more sense to some degree. You know, I mean, if you're talking about... You know, D.D. Gregorius, sure, is a younger player, you know, not much of an offensive guy, but, you know, he's a guy that could certainly be pushed into more of a utility role, a utility and field role, if they wanted to make a play for somebody like Tuowitsky. And say they get two years out of him at shortstop and then have to move him, well, Teixeira is going to be gone by that point, so you could always try to move him to first base. Maybe there's some flexibility in the outfield. There, of course, is the D.H. position for him, so... For me, I actually thought the Yankees were a better fit than the Mets. Uh, of course, I think what you're running into with the Yankees, while they certainly have the money to do it, uh, I think the downside there is,, you know, do they have the prospects to do it? And I think for the number of young pitchers the Rockies would want in uh, a side to other talent, I think you're talking about, you know three or four significant young prospects. And I'm not sure the Yankees really have that type of talent to give up right now.
0: The Yankees just lost Kuroda, who announced he's going back to Japan. They lost Brandon McCarthy to the Dodgers earlier this offseason. Do you see them making a play for Max Scherzer?
1: I really did. You know, at the winter meetings, when, when a lot of that stuff was kind of when the Scherzer, you know, Derby was still taking shape. Uh, and We had the John Lester signing as well, obviously. Everybody was trying to figure out, you know, what teams are going to get involved, which Scherzer, where the market was going to go for him. And given the Yankees pitching situation, and that was even before McCarthy had left for the Dodgers and before Kuroda had decided to go back to Japan, I I just thought that the Yankees were, you know, kind of running out of options. You know, they needed another big, you know, front end of the rotation starter, and a number one certainly would help. Um, But since that time, I mean, the Yankees really have been adamant, you know, both on and off the record about not wanting to, to, to pay the price in length of years in contract for Scherzer, or what it's going to wind up costing. And, and, and Boris has intimated at the winter meetings that he wants to kind of take aim at that Kershaw deal, uh, which doesn't surprise me. That's what Scott Boris does. And you know, whether or not he gets that is a different different situation. Can he get $260 million from Max Scherzer As a free agent, he gets the right teams involved. That's certainly possible. Um, but for right now, Ross, I mean, the Yankees are saying no. There's a lot of time between now and spring training. You know, we have no idea where the market is going to go for shirts or so. Even though they're saying they won't get involved right now, I'd be surprising to me if they didn't kick the tires a little bit and see where that price is going to go uh, before we can count them completely out.
0: Do you think the Yankees are done adding this offseason or at least done adding significant pieces?
1: Uh, hmm. That's another tough call. at, At this early stage... I would say no. Uh, I think the way the team looks right now is that it still needs some help. Uh, Cash, Brian Cashman has reiterated how much they want to try to get younger. Uh, I'm not sure how they do that exactly, uh, but they can maybe try to get creative with a few things. Uh, you know, if you, re, if you remember back, the deals for Pineda and um, the signing of Corona a number of years back happened very late during the winter. So I, I think this is a case where the Yankees still have plenty of time. I think they're bumping up a little bit at the feeling of their payroll right now. I, I think we're placing them, you know, about two fifteen, maybe a little bit higher than that going going forward. Uh, so I don't know how much more money they have left to spend, but I, I don't think they're done trying to improve the team. You know, we'll see whether that involves some kind of trade they can do or whether it involves another big piece like a Max Scherzer.
0: There's a looming... Sideshow circus in spring training with A. Rod. What are their plans with A. Rod going into spring?
1: Yeah, that's uh, circus is is one way to put it. Uh, I've been part of those before uh, with him around. It as as we know, you know whether he's coming back from a year-long suspension or just showing up for spring training, uh, the 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 circus tends to follow Alex Rodriguez around. So right now, I think we've seen uh, Alex Rodriguez's role being further diminished. We've seen him basically lose out on any shot of being the third baseman of this team with the re-signing of Chase Headley. Uh, that was a pretty big shot over his bow by the Yankees. Uh, so right now you're looking at a guy that could potentially be their full-time DH. That said, you know, Cashman has, has been pretty forward in saying that, you know, A-Rod is going to have to earn his spot on the team. This is not a situation where they're just putting him in as the full-time DH, and that's that. They have to see that he can hit which they're not 100% sure he can do after missing a year with two hip surgeries. Uh, and as far as playing the field, you know, maybe if he's physically capable of it, he could spend some time at first base and spelling to share, but that, that's a big if. I think we're all wondering uh, what A-Rod is going to look like when we see him in spring training, how he's going to be able to play. We're talking about a guy that's going to be 40 in July. Uh, he's due a heck of a lot of money uh, from the Yankees, and the Yankees really have shown little desire at all to even want him around. So this this is something that bears watching. It wouldn't be surpri- it wouldn't be surprising to me, um, based on what happens if he winds up on the bench to start the year for a considerable amount of time. You know, if if somebody if they could work on a way to, to get him off the team at some
0: point. Switching over to the Mets, Matt Harvey is returning this year. How do the Mets plan on using him?
1: That's a, you know, that's a tough thing for the Mets. You know, you get you back your number one starter. You know, certainly the the big gate attraction of that team. You've been waiting so long to have him back. And now you have to kind of put the training wheels on him. You know, you have to be careful with him. Um, You know, he's going to need to be eased back in. Sandy Alderson has already talked about innings limits and worried about the number of starts he's going to get. This is turning into another Steven Strasburg type of thing, but what the Mets are going to try to do is rather than lose him at the end of the season because he's hit his number of innings or he's hit his number of starts, is to try to break it up a little, you know, whether it's having him start the season a little bit late, whether it's mixing it up so he you know maybe spend a time on the disabled list if he needs some sort of a break and replaced. um, so they're really going to try to 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 space him out and rest him accordingly. Uh, you know, for the Mets, given the situation with the, the young pitches on innings limits and him coming back from Tommy John, you, you would think it'd be a great time for the, you know, the old six starter experiment, the six man rotation. I don't see any indication they're going to go that way. I still think that's too radical uh, for teams in the majors right now. But the Matt Harvey thing, you know, he's kind of a, a full tilt, full time kind of guy. So it's going to be tough to hold him back. He says he's on board with the plan. Really kind of easing him back in. So that's a good first step. You know, we'll, we'll see how the situation develops, you know, once they get underway.
0: David Wright struggled last season, wasn't the same player at all. Is this a significant cause for concern going forward, or is this just a bad season?
1: Oh, Ross, I'm, I'm not sure if the Mets were relieved to know it was because he was playing hurt with a bad shoulder for as long as he was last year, uh, you know, because you don't want, you know, your star player and your, and your highly paid star player your face of the franchise to be bothered by something as significant as a shoulder injury. But on the flip side of that, you know, at least they can they had something to pin it on. You know, they could blame his, as you mentioned, you know, very decreased production offensively uh on the shoulder. Uh, you know, right right plays the game hard. He's always throwing him he's always throwing himself around. He hurt his shoulder last year sliding into second base he, when he jammed it. Uh, we we know that he played with a, a fractured vertebrae in his back a couple years ago before that was fully checked out. So I think they're relieved that now he's he's easing back into baseball activity with that shoulder, which isn't giving him any, any problem. So they can exhale about that. But again, you know, David Wright's getting another year older. You know, that this is a guy that, as we've seen in, in this era, now that there has been increased crackdown on PED use in baseball that players aren't getting better as they get older anymore. And I I think that's going to be a concern from Wright with Wright until we see him, you know, have a throwback season, you know, have another year where he's going to be uh, a power hitting, you know, run producing third baseman for them. And we, we really haven't seen that with any type of consistency for a number of years now. So that's going to be another question mark for them.
0: Let's shift over to the Hall of Fame. You mentioned PEDs. What's your philosophy on how to handle PEDs and the Hall of Fame?
1: As anybody who's seen my ballot for the past few years, um, it's easy. I don't hide my intentions uh, very well because two of the biggest people that uh, voters like to point to uh, in Bonds and Clemens, if they both appear on my ballot, uh, I, I do vote for them. I guess that puts me in a certain camp. Uh, As whether you're a Bonds or Clemens quote-unquote supporter, Uh, but I don't don't really, you know, I'm not really trying to make a political statement there or anything. In in, in my view, uh, in in voting for the Hall of Fame, I do try to pick the 10 players that I believe should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, It's not any type of maneuvering, you know, around the 10-player limit to see who should get votes and who shouldn't, and how I can get players in. I look at the ballot and, and say, these, in, in my eyes, that these players, in my eyes, are the ones that belong in the Hall of Fame. And when it comes to PEDs, you know that line gets a little blurry, obviously, and it, it's certainly hard to to be to go by certain rules. In, in the case of Bonds and Clemens, what what I try to do uh, is basically say, you know, these are two players that were certainly followed around by a cloud of PED suspicion. Um, they certainly wound up in court, both of them, uh, because of being linked to PEDs. Uh, they never tested positive for PEDs, uh, which is where I, I like to uh, make the distinction. Uh, and to me, th- these were two of the greatest players to, to ever play this game. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't leave them out of the Hall of Fame. I know there's an ethics clause in, in picking players, and you're supposed to consider that as well. Uh, but fame to me is a very kind of ambiguous thing. And if I'm going to be talking about, you know, players that should be in Cooperstown, I I, I just can't, I can't leave those two out. I I watched them play their entire careers. Um, and to me, that would just be, uh, that's just too big of an oversight.
0: How do you think the hall of fame itself has handled the PED issue?
1: Well, (laughs) I I think, you know, the the BBWAA comes under a lot of criticism, for the way their voters vote, uh, whether they, people vote for Bonds and Clemens, whether they don't, how many people do they vote for, what are the, you know, the the restrictions they use in voting for it. But, you know, the the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball are are glad to have a, a third entity tackle this problem because they are freed from it. You know, Major League Baseball doesn't have to step in and say who should be in the Hall of Fame or not based on PEDs, the Hall of Fame doesn't need to do that. All they need to do is say here it is and just throw it in the lap of the baseball writers uh, you know, who have voted on this award voted on this award for I mean not award but honor uh, basically since its inception Um, so I I think both those entities, Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame are fine with the way that the writers have handled it Uh, they'll accept whatever players they put forward and I think they're happy uh, quite honestly, that that Bonds and Clemens have been kept out, and other other players that have been under the cloud of PDs have been kept out as well. But to me, I I, I think it's such an arbitrary thing that I, that that it hurt ultimately hurts the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown to not have players like that enshrined in it.
0: Yeah, I don't know why the Hall of Fame doesn't put them in and then acknowledge that they used or that it was part of their legacy. And whether Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens get into the Hall of Fame or not, steroids will always be part of their legacy. I think if you acknowledge what they did on the field, which unquestionably is hall worthy, and also acknowledge the steroid allegations and uh, and BALCO and everything else that went on, put both on their plaque, put both on their websites, put both in their bios. I don't see why the Hall should be running away from history.
1: No, I, I agree, Ross. I mean, we've we've all come to the conclusion that the, that you know we can't pretend you know, the PEDs, you know, didn't exist in baseball or was this shadowy world or for a period of time, <laughs> they, were, they were pretty prevalent in the sport. Uh, Major League Baseball obviously has acknowledged that by cracking down quite hard on it. Um, so we, we just can't pretend that they didn't exist. Yes, there there was a, a, a steroid error. And, and yes, that there there is still kind of a PED error right now because of, of the strong testing that's going on. So the other part of it that, that bothers me, and that people are militant about, you know, not voting for bonds and not voting for Clemens, you know, or not voting for Piazza, you know, where, where do you draw the line here? I mean, how do you know what players on the ballot took steroids or HGH or whatever else and who didn't? I mean, I, I, do you know for sure? And again, I'm just throwing this out. But do you know players like Randy Johnson or other players never took drugs? I mean, do you know that 100% with certainty? I don't think anybody does, except the players themselves. And this is not to cast aspersions. Again, this is just hypothetical. But I don't think you can just say that about some players because, you know, oh, another player told me that this player did it. Or I knew another agent who told me that they heard this player did it. I just don't think that's fair. While it may be true, unless you can prove it or give me some sort of evidence uh, to that, then I really can't hold it against that player because maybe some players are better at disguising it than others. And many of us on the outside, even many of us on the inside that cover the game closely don't know for sure.
0: I think if we ever had a full list of every player that used steroids across every sport, we would be stunned by how many names are on that list. I I think the idea that it's see like a few radicals is ludicrous.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you Ross. I mean, for people to say a certain body type or based on somebody's injury history or well, people would be surprised. I mean, the way that many of these drugs are designed, you know, the effects they have on people's bodies, they don't just instantly turn into the hulk. You know, there are other ways uh, that it helps strengthen bodies, you know, unnaturally. So, you know, this eyeball test or, or seeing, you know, whatever other physical part that people want to say for sure, oh, this person did it. Uh, to me, I, you can't do that with 100% accuracy. You, you just don't know.
0: And who would have thought Bartolo Colon used steroids, or Melky Cabrera used steroids? They certainly don't have the body type, or really the production that people associate with steroids. But I think people have to realize that it wasn't just Hall of Fame caliber players using steroids. It was minor leaguers. It was the last guy on the roster. There were players of all different skill levels using, and all different body types too.
1: Absolutely, and, and, and to people that you know, one of the arguments that are coming up with Gary Sheffield, and when people try to say, I mean, Gary Sheffield's numbers undoubtedly. Uh, make him look like a Hall of Famer, you know, and what they like, what they say about it is, that, oh, Sheffield, sure, he admitted to using steroids or he admitted to using, you know, the cream or the clear, but he said he didn't know what it was. So I, you know, he hasn't lied about things in the past. So I believe him when he said he didn't know. And it's like, really? That's what we're going to base things on? I mean, this is somebody that admitted using a steroid. Uh, and I find it extremely hard to believe and I still find it extremely hard to believe, knowing athletes, as I have, uh, that they would take anything, whether it's an injection, eat something, or do something else, without knowing what it is. Uh, so I, I just don't think that, uh, that cuts it.
0: Well, that's one thing that drives me crazy, too. And Sheffield admitted to using for one summer. So let's, oh, right. let's say he is telling the truth. Let's say he did use for one summer. We make no distinction between people who used uh, or maybe tried it once and people who used habitually like Mark McGuire. I think we make a difference between people who smoke marijuana every day and people who smoke twice in college. I think we view them differently, but we don't do that with steroids. You test positive once, you're all in the same pot. Right,
1: right. I, it's a, I, I like what you said, Ross, about acknowledging uh, what had happened, and if you want to do that for a Bonds and the Clemens, and mention the fact that they were linked, you know, in Bonds's case was was linked to Balco or in Clemens's case was you know was dogged by, you know, persistent PED, you know, PED. I, I won't say speculation, but allegations, I guess, is the best way uh, to use it. You certainly can acknowledge it in some fashion. Um, I, I still think the Hall of Fame is is on the fence about how to, you know, document you know, that period in baseball because it is a black eye, and you know, in baseball history. It is a little, you know, baseball is ashamed of it. You know, it was something that they worked very hard to correct as best they could, or I should, should say Bud Selig, you know, tried to spearhead after, after presiding over it um, in baseball for quite some time. So, you know, I, they've certainly done the right thing. And, and cracking down on it and trying to and, and cleaning up the sport. It, seemed, they've had a lot of, it seems like they've had a lot of success at that. But, you know, you, you can't pretend it was a big part of the game for a longer period of time that people would like to acknowledge. Uh, and it does need to be, you know, it does need to be mentioned in context uh, with that
0: era of the game. The voting process itself has been under fire for quite some time. It's getting more attention this year. Buster only refused to vote because he didn't like the 10-slot limit. Lynn Henning did the same thing. These are two credible people who are longtime voters who are just basically tossing their ballot and not wanting to vote in the process or partake in the process anymore. Do you think the Hall of Fame should eliminate or at least increase the 10-slot limit?
1: Yeah, it it, it was voted on at at our last meeting at at the winter meetings in San Diego uh, when the baseball writers, you know, had their... We usually meet uh, once the winter meetings at the all-star game at the world series to address a lot of these issues. And and, and that came up as far as what, what type of reform there might be for the ballot. And this is, this is done in conjunction with the hall of fame. This is not something that we just independently decide on. Uh, We discuss it with, we work very closely with the hall of fame on what they'd like to do uh, and what, and they can always veto any suggestions that we have if they want things to remain. So, But I think there is a pretty big movement right now uh, about increasing the number of people you can vote for. I I don't understand why it has to be limited. Uh, I I can see why they want to limit it because they want to keep people on the ballot for a, a certain amount of time and then take them off and clear space for others. But if people feel there should be 12, 13, 14, 15 people on the ballot worthy of the Hall of Fame, then by all means, I think they should be able to vote for that. I don't. I don't see why there needs to be a restriction. Um, I'm not sure how much progress we made. I think that the way we left it was the vote was to further discuss it about increasing it, but they seem. It seems to be they want to only increase it by a couple of spots, maybe from 10 to 12. Uh, whereas I think that's unnecessary. I, I think you should just leave it open. I think the voting body is discriminating enough. Yeah, not to abuse it and not to just vote for 20 players that belong in the Hall of Fame. I think people, you know, know enough about this game and know enough about the players on the ballot to pick the people that are deserving. And, and I think it should be opened up. And, and hopefully that's something that will happen, uh, if not for next year's ballot and the one after that.
0: Last year, you voted for Bonds, Clemens, Bagwell, Biggio, Piazza, Reigns, Schilling, Maddox, Thomas, and Glavin. Do you plan on voting for the same holdovers this year, the same seven holdovers, and adding the three newcomers, Pedro, Johnson, and Smoltz?
1: Uh, Yep, that's exactly what I did do. Uh, I think there were some other tough choices on there. Uh, I think Mike Messina uh, is is another guy uh, that really is deserving of consideration. Uh, I was held back by the the 10-player limit. Uh, as we just mentioned, so yeah, I mean that, that's the that's the way I'm going to go with it. I, I certainly think the the three newcomers will make it in uh, on the first ballot. Uh, I assume that Biggio will get in after narrowly missing last year, uh, and I, I think that Piazza has an outside shot here too. I, I know that uh, some outside entities have been counting up the public ballots and trying to see, and I think he was maybe around 79%. At last count, I mean that's a very small fraction of the ballots that has him at that, and maybe a lot of the, you know, I guess I can call them old timers won't vote for somebody like Piazza as those as those ballots come in later. But you know, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to see Piazza get in there this time. I, I it's interesting to see. Usually, when a player has that many votes, they usually get in over a period over the next few years. Uh, it doesn't usually go the other direction, but if there only if there's only so many players if you can only vote for 10 players on the ballot and new players keep appearing, you know players like Piazza can be forced further down the line. so I guess we'll see how it pans out.
0: And these next two years are interesting because last year and this year, there were newcomers, there were multiple newcomers that seemed like automatic, obvious Hall of Famers. When last year we saw Glavin and Frank Thomas and and Greg Maddox, obviously this year, Johnson, Pedro, and Smoltz. Next Mm -hmm. year it's Griffey. And there are other people who I I think Jim Edmonds should be in, but he's much more borderline than Griffey, obviously. Griffey will get in, but he may be the only one. And the year after that, you're looking at Pudge Rodriguez, and there are certainly some steroid questions with him. There's Manny Ramirez who might fall off the ballot his first time on it, which think about that. And then right. there's Vlad Guerrero, who I think will get into eventually, but probably not right away. So for guys like Piazza or Tim Raines, these next two years is really where they're going to have to make their run.
1: Yeah, and you're right. That, that is a, that's a good point, where, where they can maybe take advantage of a lull in that. You know, when you had a couple of years back when the Hall of Fame had no one uh, elected in, which was kind of a t- tough spot for them and made for a rough summer uh, as far as attendance-wise for, for the induction ceremony so it, it it's a case where you know the Hall of Fame likes to have people you know enter the Hall of Fame. They just don't want it to be super strict, so they don't really get candidates over certain over on certain years, so they're happy to get as many as they can, but they've been lucky the, the, last year and this year uh that they will have some slam dunk uh players on that list before it does you know before it does get lean over the next couple.
0: Yeah, and I think 2017 might be a year where it might be another shutout. None of those three newcomers are going to get in right away with Vlad, Manny, or Pudge. No. So I, unless I unless Piazza gets some new supporters, unless Reigns or Schilling get big jumps, there could be another shutout. I mean, Trevor Hoffman's coming on next year too. I mean, if it's if it's a shutout or just Trevor Hoffman, neither is a good option for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> no, yeah,
1: I think I think you're right about that. And I certainly I certainly think Trevor Hoffman will, will will get into the Hall of Fame. I know it hasn't been uh, the easiest thing for relief pitchers to uh, to get in, uh, but but in his case, I'd be I'd be very surprised if he uh, if he had much resistance there.
0: You've been listening to David Lennon. David is the national baseball writer for Newsday. You can give him a follow on Twitter at dp David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Ross. Hopefully, talk to you again soon.